Thank you so much, Father Paul. Um, well, I'm so just delighted to be here with each of you. Um, in this season after Thanksgiving, I am thankful for you today. Um, I'm thankful for the leadership of this family. Thankful to Father Paul. You have a wonderful rector in your midst, and we're so thankful for him. And thankful for Bishop Ed and all of the other leadership here. And, and I'm thankful to be here today. I'm excited when Father Paul asked me to step in today. I just was such a joy. So um, as you know, today marks the beginning of the season of Advent. As uh, we have been told already, this marks a New Year's Day in the church calendar. So it's the very beginning of a new year in the church calendar. And Advent, I think, I want to suggest today that Advent is a bit challenging for us to observe in America today. There's a lot of things that push back on this, and not least of these is that we celebrate during December what we call the Christmas season. <laughs> in fact, you know, marketers, they know something special about this season, but they can't quite put their finger on it. So we hear a lot about the magic of Christmas, what, whatever that is, right? <laughs> or, or the beauty of Christmas or these kind of things, because we can't quite put our finger, what is this season that we celebrate? This is the season of lights and gifts and Christmas movies and decorations in our culture. But Advent and Christmas are two entirely different seasons, two completely different seasons altogether. In the historic church calendar, what we call the Christmas season actually begins on Christmas Day, and it goes for 12 days, okay? That's where they get the song, the 12 days of Christmas, right? The 12 days that follow uh, Christmas Day, beginning on Christmas Day. But Advent, Advent is different altogether. In some sense, Advent anticipates Christmas. It looks forward to Christmas, but it's not as jolly. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. Advent is a season of preparation. Father Paul said earlier, Advent begins in the dark, it carries with it a sense of longing, also a sense of brokenness, a recognition of need. If we're not careful, we can easily rush to Christmas. And it makes sense that we want to do so. Christmas is beautiful. Christians affirm the reality of the incarnation, Christ taking on human flesh. We read the Christmas story and we go, this is amazing. Of course we want to rush to that. But Christians have also affirmed historically the need for space and time to prepare our hearts, to wait and to long. In Advent, we wait. But we don't like waiting. And this is perhaps why in our culture, Advent has all but disappeared. Longing gets replaced with hurrying. <laughs> so this season in December is all about just getting everything done in time buying all the right stuff, curating the right experience for our family. And we hurry and we hurry and we hurry. And it becomes so much about our work instead of about God's work. It changes us, right? Advent is this season of expectation and longing and hope, but it's not a superficial hope. It's a deep hope that we have. In fact, the reason why we hear the song, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoicing, is that's the good news of Christmas, right? Thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, but Advent says, we're a weary world. We need something new. We need something different. Our world is not as it should be. Advent begins in the midst of the world's pain. We anticipate because we know that not all is right with the world as it is. So we long and we hope. Okay, historically, the church has affirmed three Advents, all right? So we have what we call Adventus Redemptionus. This is my Latin with my Oklahoma accent this morning, so you're going to have to forgive me. But, but this is the Redemptionist is the idea of the incarnate Christ 
we recognize this event born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, that Christ came in the flesh. The longing and hope of Israel, the longing and hope of the world came to us in the form of a baby. Then we have Adventus Sanctificationists. This is the second Advent. This is where we recognize Christ's continual coming, Christ's presence uh, in word and in sacrament. So whenever the word is proclaimed, whenever we receive the sacrament, Christ is coming to us and it transforms us so that we might be a people of the word, a sacramental people in the world. And then the third advent is Adventus Glorificamus. And this is the coming in glory to be our judge on the last day. This longing that there will be a day when all will be made right. So that means that today we anticipate judgment. (laughs) We long for judgment. This may sound really harsh, but this is exactly what we're waiting for. We want judgment, whether we know it or not. Judgment sounds scary. The very sound of the word may make our skin crawl this morning. But think about it this way. In our world, we like the idea of justice, justice, right? We all believe that something should be made right. And I know that word is loaded so many ways culturally, but we all want justice. We we know that there's something disordered or unjust in the world and it needs to be put right. And yet, something about judgment, we don't quite understand. We say, bring us justice. We want justice, but we don't want judgment. I remember a time um, about three years ago, my my eight-year-old was five at the time, And we were in the local grocery store, and at our local grocery store, there's one checker at the cash register who does balloon animals for kids. So every time a child goes through, he just pulls out his his balloons, and he starts blowing up and making animals, and the kids love him, right? So we're there, and we're in a hurry. We're buying some stuff, and I'm with Lucy, and I've got her next to me, and uh, we go to the cash register, and his line is the longest line. Like, there's no sense that we should get in this line. There are shorter lines. I'm an efficient person. I want to get through the line, get out. It's the holiday season, all of that stuff. And so Lucy's like, no, I want to go in this one. I want to go in this one. It starts to almost look a little awkward. It's like, no, we need to go to these other ones. They're shorter. So finally, I look at Lucy and I say, it just doesn't make any sense for us to wait in this guy's line when these other lines are so short. And she looks at me and she says, don't judge me. (laughs) I want a balloon animal. And I think this is a common refrain for many of us in our culture. Like, "Don't, don't judge me. Don't, don't call me out on stuff. Like, I just I kind of want to do what I want to do. I, I want what I want. <laughs> we don't want to be judged. And there's a reason for this, right? We all know that human judgment is flawed. It's limited. That whenever other people judge us, there's a reason why we react and we say, don't judge me, because we know that many of the judgment that comes at us in our world is self-seeking on behalf of the one doing the judging. (laughs) Or they don't have a full view or a full picture. They don't understand our story. So we say, don't judge me. Don't, Don't do that to me. But in order for justice to happen in fullness, the world needs to be judged. You can't have justice without judgment. So what we long for, what we desperately need is the judgment of God. We don't just need judgment. We need to be judged by the God who desires to heal us and restore us fully. Though we're resistant to it, judgment is what we're deeply longing for. 
We're waiting for healing. We're waiting for the world to be made right. So this is why, you know, sometimes in this season, because of the way our culture is, when we come to church on Sunday, we expect to hear stories about the shepherds and about Mary and about baby Jesus. Well, we're not there yet. We got a little while before we get there. You're going to hear a lot of stories about judgment over the next few weeks. (laughs) You're going to get a whole lot of John the Baptist over the next couple weeks. That's part of what the church has anticipated. We need healing. We need things to be put right, things to be shown light upon. We need those things. In fact, maybe just try put John the Baptist on your Christmas card this year, right? Instead of a nativity scene, meek and mild, John the Baptist with his scraggly clothes, eating some locusts or something. In fact, even in the, as people debate all the whole, say, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or whatever, maybe during this time, Christians should say something when we greet each other, like, who told you to flee the coming wrath? <laughs> now, I'm not saying we should be Grinches this time of year. Don't hear that. And there's a fundamentalism that's not healthy with all of this. Certainly, we should join in the merriment. Watch the Christmas movies, even the silly Hallmark and Netflix ones. Listen to the Christmas music, because all of these celebrations rumor the Christmas story. They point us to the Christmas story. But I do think Christians in our own lives can hold the reins a little bit on the celebration in this season, because only because we're not in a rush. We're not in a hurry. We know that we need some space to allow for revealing to happen in our lives and in the world. Another way we can do this, because anytime you add more fasting in the church calendar, you also on the other side need to add more feasting. So the other thing we can recapture is the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas, okay? This is something often in our culture what happens is we rush and rush and rush to Christmas day, we get there, we open all the presents, we clean up, and then we're exhausted, right? But the church calendar has said this season of waiting and preparation is then followed by 12 days of feasting of celebrating the reality of the incarnation of Christ's presence in our midst. And we celebrate that. We rejoice in that. I love this because my birthday is the day after Christmas. There's a lot of feasting. I mean, I have to do it. I'm a Christian. I have to feast during this time. When we understand that Advent is first and foremost about the posture of waiting on God, it also helps us to avoid the pitfalls of consumerism in this season. Consumerism and our cultural Christmas traditions often promise a fix, a pathway to joy, a way to numb the world's pain without actually entering into the world's pain. But the judgment that we hope for in Advent is a judgment rooted in the character of our loving God. And I'm going to talk in a minute about what that judgment looks like. What does that really look like? But first, I want to just briefly look at our Old Testament text and our New Testament text. So the first one is Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. And in this text, Jeremiah is proclaiming God's promise in the midst of a broken and flawed world. In fact, this whole section, chapters 30 through 33, is called the book of consolation because there's a whole lot of bad news in Jeremiah. <laughs> and here in these three chapters, there is hope that God will fulfill his promise. He will prove himself to be true. He's not given up on Israel and on Judah. At the time of the prophecy, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. Many of the people had been taken out of their land and placed in a foreign land in Babylon in exile. 
And this was difficult for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons was the people of God who had been given a land, they'd been given a space, so much of their deliverance from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, was pointing them towards this land that they would inherit. And they had finally entered the land and they had been there. And now by the empire Babylon, they had been taken out. They had been exiled. So they'd been cut off from this promise that God had given them. And not only that, the temple was in their land. So they're cut off from God's presence. They're cut off from this place where it was believed heaven and earth meet. And they find themselves in a pagan and in a foreign land. In exile, God's people are separated from the promise and they're ruled by pagans. So this is a dark and murky time for God's people. So what begins to happen is they find themselves in this place where they are tempted towards accommodation. So instead of being faithful to Yahweh, they begin to mix the the idols of the pagan gods uh, with the worship of Yahweh. Or on the other end, they're tempted to just curse Babylon, to sit back and curse Babylon. And in the midst of this section, God promises them that he will be faithful, that there is a time coming. There is something new that's going to happen. And this prophecy harkens back to the time of David which was seen as the best time in Israel's history where they were ruled with justice and righteousness and there is hope of a better day. Walter Brueggemann says, the text insists that the resolve of God is strong and active enough to create new possibility in the world. God's resolve overrides the deathly circumstance of the world and authorizes and permits new life, which did not seem possible in the season of displacement. We see something here about the character and nature of God, that God is faithful to his promises. God is aware of the distress of his people. He is aware of their temptations. He knows that they become divided and they become accommodated. And in the midst of this murkiness, God speaks in the darkness. He has not forgotten his people. And he's not forgotten us today. We've been through a whole lot these past couple years. The world has shifted and changed in a variety of different ways. Our world feels like it's shaking. (laughs) We know that there's something fundamentally wrong with our world, but we struggle to name it. We struggle to figure out what is that fundamental thing that's broken in our world. Even the church has changed. Our culture's receptivity to the story of God is different, even than it was a couple years ago, but I think that accelerated some longer-term trends that were going on. In this season, I think it's so appropriate for us to hear that it's in these moments, these moments that feel dark and difficult, These are the moments in which God often speaks. These are the moments where we're often reminded of hope. A righteous branch did sprout from David's line. He carried out justice even as he was unjustly killed. We trust that God is with us in this time. Many of you are grieving members, family members, and friends who were lost to COVID. We wrestle with how the Christian story makes sense in our world today. But we remember that God has not abandoned us, that he's with us. He's with us now. We long for the day when we see God's reign in full and we hear today even the whispers in the darkness that this is not the end of the story. A time is coming. In our first Thessalonians passage, it kind of sneaks under the radar a little bit. If you read these passages, 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13 doesn't seem very advent 
It is Paul saying that he's praying for the congregation. He wants to see the congregation in Thessalonica in person. He wants to see them face to face. He loves them so much that he thinks if he can just get with them face to face, he will be part of the restoration that is happening in their faith. The year 2020 was particularly difficult and has continued for real life on life relationships. Many of us relied on technology in ways that we never thought that we would before. (laughs) Technology filled in the gaps for us in some different ways when we couldn't see each other in person. And now, slowly but surely, we're all kind of learning, how do we rebuild these face-to-face relationships? I've talked to several people that are going, I'm kind of relearning social skills now. (laughs) How do I go to a party? (laughs) How do I hang out with people? What does that look like? I don't think we're aware of how this lack of face-to-face life-on-life relationship has formed us and has changed us in this season. But this is what we had to do. We had to do this with church, right? We had to be online for a while. We had to do this with our families and our friends. We've been trying to save each other's lives in a time where our very presence has been a threat to others. And many of us have just been trying to make the best decisions we can in the moment. But we all know there's something different about face-to-face, don't we? Something different about being in person. Things can happen face-to-face that they can't happen otherwise. So maybe today you have felt or feel Paul's longing in this passage when he says, night and day, we pray most earnestly for you. We pray for you. I want to see you face-to-face, Paul says. I wonder if true restoration only happens in face-to-face, real, physical life in real bread and wine, in hearing the imperfect voice of the person next to you as we sing together, (laughs) in hearing the pastor who proclaims the word of God in the midst of us, of real handshakes and real hugs. We all know that virtual can can be a supplement and sometimes it's a necessary placeholder, but it's not, we know that it's not quite a substitute. It's not the end. Well, Paul didn't have the internet. He didn't have any substitute in that way, but he's saying, I'm sending you this letter and this letter is wonderful. Like we call this letter part of the word of God, right? God speaking to us. But Paul says, the letter's not enough. I wanna see you in person. I wanna see you face to face. He says, night and day, I pray for you most earnestly. The word here is intense. I pray for you intensely. I read more than one scholar over the past few weeks who has said that Paul's getting a little carried away here. I get a little bit emotional. St. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers says, Paul's prayers demonstrate a fervent soul unable to restrain his love. Do you see the unrestrained madness of love that is shown by these words? Paul prays and he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Paul connects our ability to live lives that are blameless and holiness with our love for one another, our love for each other. In other words, blamelessness and holiness is interconnected with the community of faith, that we learn to live this life together. The church is an organism My faith and your faith are connected. The churches that understand this best are suffering churches. Churches that have experienced incredible suffering, they know the communal nature of our story. Some of us with more 
affluence and the culture that we live in, that's kind of hard for us to understand. But there is such a communal nature to our faith that we're in this together. And this is why it's so important that we stand in solidarity with those who are persecuted and marginalized and oppressed because we're in the struggle together. We stand shoulder to shoulder with those who suffer because Christ has stood shoulder to shoulder with us. He has suffered with us and for us and we bear witness to him. In this passage, when Paul longs and he says, I just pray, I just wanna be with you face to face. I wanna restore what's lacking in your faith and we can only do that face to face. I think about the Adventist sanctificationists, the second advent. We recognize that God is with us in word and sacrament. We really believe that here. We really believe that stuff. (laughs) That when the word is proclaimed and we receive the sacrament, God is really here with us. God is with us, one could say, face to face. And that transforms us, the church, to be a sacrament in the world, to be a sign of God's love and grace in the world. I love our uh, grace and peace time that we have in services where we turn to one another and greet each other with grace and peace. You could think of this as just a casual greeting, but really this is this idea that our faith is not just something individual that we keep to ourselves. It's not just a way that we've been inspired or informed. Our faith is to be shared. We share grace and peace with one another. In our gospel text, Jesus speaks and has been speaking throughout the chapter in these big cosmic apocalyptic language. So if you read this whole chapter, he's just been talking about like, like world shaking, like the heaven shaking, the, all these earthquake language, cosmological phenomenons, the roaring of the sea. And then he says, the son of man will come on a cloud in verse 27. And then it's all supposed to happen in the next generation, he says. <laughs> what? <laughs> One of the ways that the church has understood this is what happened a generation right after Jesus's words. Um, the temple, at that time, the Jerusalem temple was really everything for the people of God. It was the source, it was where they went for forgiveness, for healing, for restoration. It was, if you wanted to experience and know God's presence, if you wanted to be in community, you went to the temple. It meant everything to their faith. God gave them this temple as his house. And it was believed God really lived there. So God lives with his people. And this was a sign to all the pagan nations and the pagan nations of the world that God lives in our neighborhood. If you don't believe us, he has a house here. He's with us. He's close to us. That's what the temple meant. So the Jewish people believed the closer you were to the temple, the closer you were to God. At this time, what had happened, though, is this beautiful signpost of God's presence, the temple, had become corrupt. It had become a place of kind of political posturing. In this, certain kinds of people, Gentiles, women, those who were broken in their bodies in some way, were kept out of the temple, away from the temple become a place of exclusion, place of nationalism. That's why it was so significant that when Jesus shows up, he starts doing things outside the temple. So he starts forgiving people's sins. The thing that the temple's supposed to do, he starts doing it outside the temple. He starts healing people. The thing that the temple's supposed to do, he does it outside the temple. He starts restoring people into community. The thing the temple was supposed to do, he starts to do that outside the temple. This passage here is about how that temple within a generation is about to be judged. The center of everything, the place where heaven and earth meet is going to be destroyed. 
and this will send the people of God into chaos. This was actually just the beginning, the microcosm, because if the temple is going to be judged, it really means the world is going to be judged, shown as incomplete and finally fulfilled in Christ. Jesus' words come true, we believe, in about 70 AD, when Jerusalem is ransacked and the temple is destroyed. The center of the Jewish faith is destroyed. This destruction does send the Jewish world into chaos. Why does this matter? Okay, destruction of a temple 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with us? I think it's important for us to hear this because all of us have systems and structures in our world that we hold on to that we know aren't best. They're not God's design. Narratives about our lives and about our world that we cling on to and we go back to over and over again. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. Some of them are destructive. But all of them, in Advent, we hope that all of them will be revealed in light of who Jesus is. Advent is painful because it's a picture of a world whose systems, whose answers to the world's problems are limited at best and deeply harmful at worst. Here, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that there are three things that will remain in God's new world, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. If we believe this, if we believe it's only the words of God that will last, it's only faith and hope and love that will last, we need those other things that don't last, we need them to be judged. We need them to be recognized as incomplete as not the answer to the world's hope. Advent is us coming to grips with the fact that the structures and systems we hold on to in this life are not enough. They're not going to hold up. This is centered in God's great love. So when we anticipate the redemption in Christ and we receive him, the other stuff is revealed as untrue. So the pursuit or the obsession with money, it's not going to last. We see that everywhere in our culture, but we often become primarily driven by money either for status or for security. But that's not going to last into God's new world. Money itself is fine, but it will not last, so obsession with it won't make sense. We have to hold it loosely. We also try control. If we can accumulate more power, that's the goal of life, but that one fails too. And then there's a bunch of subtle ones that we cling on to, systems and structures, things like um, performance and innovation and human progress, but they all fail. Nationalism, our hope in political figures or ideologies, they won't last. And what's sad, though, is that even as these things consistently show themselves as untrue, they consistently show themselves as not what the world needs at this time, we keep going back to them over and over again, don't we? (laughs) We keep clinging to these false things. At Advent, we anticipate the day when these things will be revealed for what they are, as empty. As pastors, we have the opportunity at times to um, meet with people, and they will confess kind of their their deepest, darkest sins. And this is something that is, um, it's something reverential. We believe it's sacramental. I've had a number of times where somebody has come and talked to me and they've revealed what is their deepest, darkest sin. And they are so worried about my reaction. They're worried about my judgment. And sometimes they don't understand why often when they're telling me this, I'm nodding and I'm smiling. (laughs) Sometimes I'll even go, this is awesome. (laughs) I'm not saying their sin is awesome, no. But what I'm saying is they've come to the end of themselves 
They've come to the point that realize this thing that I've been chasing, it's not gonna do it. It's not going to give me what I long for or what I hope for. Or the shame that I carry because of that thing can't be the narrative that rules the world, that rules my life, right? So they open themselves up to the loving judgment of God at that point. That thing is being judged and will be judged by the righteousness of God. And here's the cool thing. As that thing is brought into the light, it is healed by the love of God. And we get a glimpse into God's future world. Judgment is this idea of revealing something, showing something for what it is for the sake of healing. So if you're sick, a doctor has to judge what's in your body, right? In order to prepare healing. The scalpel hurts, but it's in order to heal. There's also a difference between judgment and condemnation. John 3 reminds us the world deserved condemnation, but has been given salvation instead. This is what's been done in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Sin was dealt with in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And then it wasn't too long before the church began to look around and they said, okay, sin has been dealt with. The evil of the world has been dealt with. But why does everything still look pretty rough? Like, why, why does the world seem dark? In fact, a lot of the movers and shakers in the early, uh, early world, uh, early church world, uh, began to look at the Christians and taunt them with this. Okay, Jesus conquered sin and death. Why does the world look the way that it does? That doesn't make sense, does it? The church in these moments continued to turn to this idea of hiddenness. Reflecting on the parables of Jesus, what Jesus has said all along, the church continued to describe the kingdom of God like a doorkeeper watching for the master's return, like a seed planted in the ground. We're waiting for the master's return. We're waiting for the harvest. So as we close today, I want to leave you with these questions. Where are the places in your life where God seems hidden right now? where you're forced to look at it and say, okay, I know that Jesus rose from the dead, but what is, why does life look like this then? Why is, are things so difficult and so hard? In those moments, we remember the faithfulness of God. In times where things seem darkest, we hold to the reality that God has proven himself faithful over and over again. As waiting people, we get to participate in God's kingdom now as signposts to a broken world. And we do this even as we have to remind ourselves of this hiddenness. In fact, that's why we need each other. That's why we long to be in community. We long to see one another. That's why Paul said we want to restore what is lacking in our faith. We need to remind each other and to be reminded of the faithfulness of God and the hiddenness of the kingdom. I think there's something beautiful when we sing together. So many of the songs that we sing are about the faithfulness of God, that God's been faithful, that God is good, that this is his character. And there are some times where you come to church and you can't sing that because you just don't feel like that. And that feels harsh and it feels difficult. But there's something about hearing your neighbor sing those words that has a formative effect even on you. Conversely, there's something about when you sing with all of your heart, even if you're way off key, <laughs> that the person next to you needs to hear that. God will be true to his promises. He will be faithful. And we trust in that and we long for that. No matter how dark or how hidden things seem right now, he is coming again. In the midst of racism in our world and poverty and suffering and war and hurricanes, 
We stand bearing witness to the God whose kingdom is now hidden. We bear witness in every act of forgiveness, every act of love or compassion or faith. We stand in solidarity with those in darkness. We bear witness and we wait. We are watchmen or watchwomen waiting. We're waiting for it with bated breath. We're standing on our tiptoes, Eugene Peterson says. We know the promise. We know the good news. We stand here in the midst of all that is wrong with the world and we hold on to this promise that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen.